Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. This is half an hour on your radio where we talk about science. And on this week's show, my name is Stu and I am going to be talking, you've probably heard the name Anning a lot in the news lately. Well, I'm not going to be talking about that Anning. I'm talking about a completely different Anning um, who also has some connection with bloodthirsty uh, dinosaur monsters. But more about her later in the show. Chris. Well, uh, I have a couple of exciting things. First of all, we have uh, another one of our Fantastic Comedy Festival interviews every time of year. Every, every March and April, we get to speak to comedians who are bringing their unique brand of science comedy to Melbourne. Comedy, comedy Festival. Yeah, and so we get to talk to them about their, their science and their humour. Um, this week, we are talking to... Atlanta Collie and Ben McKenzie, who have a show called You Chose Poorly, which is all about the psychology of decision-making, in particular, bad decision-making, why we make bad decisions. And they claim they're running an experiment as part of their show to see what bad decisions people make. But um, yeah, I think you'll have to go along to the show to find out about that. Speaking of bad decisions and experiments, Chris. Well, yeah, just for a bit of fun, I thought I would um, look at a classic experiment which has recently been uh, analysed, overanalyzed, some would say, by physicists. This is the classic experiment of putting grapes in the microwave and, cause, and causing sparks and plasma to ignite. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of YouTube videos on this topic. It's something that I used to do as a party trick back in the 90s myself. Turns out that the explanation you might have thought it was is not correct. And uh, yeah, we have a look at how you can just do it yourself quite easily. And we perhaps do some damage to the interior of our local microwave oven. What did physicists do for fun before the invention of microwaves? Stay tuned for that all coming up later in the show. When I say the name Anning, do you think of a prehistoric Ooh. ancient bloodthirsty monster? <laughs> yes, I do. We know what a dinosaur is, right? Yes. Yes. A class of ancient creatures who are unable to adapt to a changing environment and eventually through their inability to cope with a changed world became extinct. Yeah. And a very few of these ancient creatures became fossilized as had countless other generations of animals and plants before them. Yeah, we've all seen Jurassic Parks, do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they left traces of their existence trapped in sedimentary rocks. And for centuries, people had dug up these fossils and wondered about their origin. But I mean centuries ago. In the Middle Ages and the pre-Renaissance, people considered them to be evidence... Of dragons? Of, no, of the Great Flood. Mentioned mm. in the Bible. Nothing about dragons. No, not really. I think probably... I reckon there would have been some dragoning mm. going I th on. Yeah. I think some of those fossils, especially the bigger ones, they must have thought, hey, there must have been dragons. I mean, they used to write, here be dragons on maps and things. Mm. So presumably... But they thought the reason that they were finding them far inland was that they'd been washed up there by the Great Flood in the Bible. And then as the waters receded, they got covered up and, you know... But in... The 18th and 19th centuries, scientists were starting to think, hey, hang on a second, maybe, maybe, just maybe the accepted age of the earth might be slightly longer than the 6,000 years that the church is telling us that it is. Okay. And 
1799, uh, a girl was born to a Richard Anning and Mary Moore in a place called Lyme Regis, which is a town on the southern coast of England. And she would grow up to find a lot of evidence that the Earth was, in fact, much older than 6,000 years, even though at the time they didn't really understand what it meant, the things that she was finding. So Mary Anning was only 10 when her father passed away due to complications from a severe fall. He fell off a cliff. And that was compounded by tuberculosis, which was Um, incurable at the time. And the family were basically left to fend for themselves. But at the time when he died, her father was running a curiosities shop. He would find oddities on the beach and he would bring them back to his shop and he would sell them to people to get a little bit of extra money. So at the time, uh, food was really expensive in Britain because there was massive wars in Europe. There were poor harvests in Britain. So... You know, basics like bread were really, really expensive. And Mary Anning and her brothers looked for fossils along the coast to sell for extra income to keep their family going as they'd learned from their father. Did did they call them fossils at the time? <clears throat> they called them curiosities and, they, wow. you know, they had yeah. little funny... They didn't really know what they were. So they, they, they did call them fossils. They knew they were fossilised. That was a term that they used. But they didn't know what they represented. Um, so in 1811... Her brother, Joseph Anning, dug up part of a skull and they looked at it and thought, oh, that looks like a crocodile. And there'd been heaps of crocodile fossils found all over the place. So they just went, oh, well, nothing new. We'll just leave it behind. Just put it in the crocodile pile. Yeah, well, they didn't even dig it up. They actually just left it where it was because they'd seen them before. Um, But Mary thought it looked unusual. It wasn't like anything she'd seen before. So she kept going back and digging up little bits around it. So over a period of months... She unearthed the entire skeleton of an ichthyosaur, which was the first complete specimen of that creature ever uncovered wow. in the world, which sold for the sum of about 45 pounds. So <gasps> in those days, still quite it's a lot of money, money, yeah, but not quite as much as a world first fossil is probably worth. But we are talking about a girl who was 12 years old when wow. she found it. Wow. So she... The ichthyosaurs, they're the, um, they're kind of the fish or dolphin-shaped reptile. Yeah, they have they? this really, really big, long snout with lots of sharp teeth on it. But they have, like, fins like a dolphin yeah, or a fish. Yeah, they look like a very scary-looking dolphin. So not yeah. not a dinosaur. Um, they are... are they a, no, I think they're Contemporary with yeah, dinosaurs. I think they're technically not dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, so she continued collecting curiosities for sale at the family shop in Lyme Regis but uncovered much greater discoveries in the rich fossil beds than just ammonites, which they found lots and lots of, and other various ancient sea creatures. So they had lots and lots of those in their shop. Um, in 1824, which was you know um, some years later, she uncovered the almost complete skeleton of a plesiosaur, which is, um, if anyone ever tries to draw a picture of the Loch Ness Monster, they're drawing a plesiosaur. It's got a big fat body, big long skinny neck and a tiny little head on the end. Um, and and uh, paleontologists at the time, because they were sort of still called that, uh, had been trying to describe this creature and, and say, yes, this is a real creature. And there was a lot of doubt among different schools of scientists going, no, that's a ridiculous shape for an animal to be. And until they found this uh, almost complete uh, skeleton, they doubted it. But after they saw this skeleton, they went, oh, actually, that is 
very reasonable shape for an animal because once they saw all the bits together, they said, oh, yeah, look, that's that's a real thing. They're quite big as well. Yeah, and, yeah, really quite big. Most of these were huge animals, sort of, wow. you know, sort of metres long. Um, four years after she found the plesiosaur, she found the first pterosaur or flying dinosaur ever discovered outside mainland Europe. Um, and this one had a... Uh, a giant head. It looked so like a toucan. So, the, the, but when they found it, it was it was almost complete. But they were not sure how it would fly because its head was so big. They couldn't imagine that its wingspan was enough to lift it off the ground. Um, so that caused a lot of a you know bit of a ruckus. And she also found a giant fish-like monster, which was in shape somewhere between a shark and a manta ray. Which sharks cool. and manta rays are actually closely related, so yeah. it kind of makes some sort of sense. Um, and her bizarre finds inspired what is possibly the first painting of a prehistoric world populated with strange looking giant toothed fish and sea serpents and flying lizards. And that was painted by Sir Henry Thomas Delabesh. Um, and it is, a, if you see it, it's a really famous one. The ichthyosaur is biting the plesiosaur's neck and there's these pterosaurs flying around in the air above wow. them and you know it's, but it's one of the earliest times someone went maybe they all lived at the same time they probably didn't but you know it was uh it was good for a, a subject of a painting like the avengers of dinosaur <laughs> the avengers of dinosaur world yeah <laughs> um but in her lifetime though few people had any concept of that kind of prehistoric world most of them believed the earth was very young they thought it was about six thousand years old despite the buried evidence uh mary Anning kept digging up from the earth. And though she lacked a formal education, partly due to her family's religious following, excluding them from schools, so they were not Church of England, but they lived in England, so they were very discriminated against, um, she was consulted and visited by numerous scientific contemporaries while she was still alive who wanted to discuss matters of geology and paleontology with her, even though she'd never been to school, let alone university or anything like that. Um, she was widely praised by other scientists for her understanding of anatomy and fossils and is credited with figuring out that some of the rocks she found were in fact fossilised poo or coprolites. Coprolites, I was going to say. Yeah. I know that one. Yeah. So I've, she... I've been to enough Lost in Science trivias to know what a coprolite is. Yeah, Mary Anning is the person who figured that out. Did she coin the term? Um, I think she might not have, but she did recognise that they were faeces. Wow. Because, yeah. Wow. Um, She's seen her fair share of fossils to know what a fossilised poo looks like. Unfortunately, Mary died in 1847, which is quite young. She was only born in 1799, so she was not even 50. Um, Twelve years before Darwin published his Origin of the Species, which really sort of cracked open the debate on evolution and the age of the earth and the age of species and where did the species come from but her lifelong work certainly helped uncover some of that truth about the age of the earth and probably inspired other scientists to think a bit more broadly about where these fossils were actually originating across australia on the community radio network you're listening to lost in science Our next guests include Lost in Science friend of the show, Alanta Collie. Hello. Who is performing a show called You Chose Poorly at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival with Ben McKenzie. Uh, ben and Alanta, both of you, welcome to the show. Hi. 
Hello. Now, Alanta, 12 months ago, you were on air here talking about brain facts. I don't know if you recall that. Sure. Uh, and this year, you have a whole show about psychology. Is this... is do, is it because of us that this show came about? It is. I'm completely inspired by everything 3CR do, particularly Lost in Science. Uh, I thought, why not make it? That's not true. I'm lying to you. I'm lying. We, we don't have enough time for lies. I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> that was a bad choice, <laughs> uh, which is appropriate. Okay. Well, how did this show come about? And what is the show about? Well, it's kind of inspired. We, we'd been looking for an excuse to work together, actually, um, because... Uh, we, you know, I've been following Alanta's comedy careers pretty much since she started, um, and which was around the time I stopped for a while, actually, <laughs> uh, coincidentally enough. Uh, but we both do have done science-based comedy, and so yeah, we thought it would be a great thing to work together. We both enjoy working collaboratively, mm-hmm. and uh, I just happened to read a book um, when we were sitting down to say what what are we going to talk about, um, and I remembered a book that I'd read during my university career. Uh, called The Psychology of Judgment and Decision-Making, which is all about, you know, how our brains work when trying to make choices. And uh, I remember reading it and thinking it's impossible that anyone ever makes a reasonable choice <laughs> ever. Uh, we decided that would be a great theme for a show. Um, so that was kind of the inspiration. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. So can we expect a lot of science in this show? So much science. Just science on science action the whole way through. Uh, the audience are not just audience members, but willing participants in our comedy experiment. Seriously? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's full of gentle and entirely ethical audience participation. Now, will there be like a control audience that doesn't get any jokes or doesn't get any... <laughs> No, no, all the audiences get jokes. Uh, but but what we will be doing is asking the audience some questions. We don't want to say too much about it because we don't want to, we don't want anyone to prepare in advance, mm. uh, which they will be able to answer. And we'll be taking that data um, and hopefully looking at it live uh, to describe why they made the decisions they did. Mm. Okay. Now, is there anything that you can tell us without spoiling the show? Like maybe some of your your favourite bad decision making psychology. Not obviously your very favourite because that would spoil the show, but. Yeah, just a bit of a tease. Well, I one of the things I'm particularly interested in, in one of the areas that I've been writing about for the show, uh, is our brain's seeming inability to understand certain kinds of statistics, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly probability, which I think explains why you know Deal or No Deal was on air for 12 years. Like, there's no other reason why that show should be popular <laughs> except that we don't understand probability and we enjoy watching other people grapple with it. Um, and I, I talk about some of the things that you know, when we see these numbers and we get things explained to us. Even when we have it explained to us, it's really difficult to understand. Like, there's a thing called Simpson's Paradox, which I talk about briefly in the show, um, which shows that when you look at statistics um, all grouped together, they can show one thing, but when you split it up into bits, it shows the opposite thing. Mm. Uh, and it blows people's minds. They're like, that doesn't make any sense, but it does when you look at the numbers, but you have to do the numbers. It just it's, There are things that are so counterintuitive that we just find them really difficult to understand. And I, one of my favourite bits is cognitive dissonance, just the human brain's capacity to believe two completely mutually exclusive things at the same time and just sort of maintain two of them there. It's just incredible. And it, and the processes of what the brain actually does when it becomes conscious of those clashes uh, is really fascinating to me as well. So I've been diving into all of the meaty uh, data on cognitive dissonance. Great. What two things do you have in your yeah, mind right now, Alanta? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
All right. Now, so your show at last year's Comedy Festival was about bees. It was. Uh, do you think that, which is more complicated, I guess, the bee brain or the human brain? Oh, I think the beautiful thing about bees is we know so little about how their brain works. And more the, the more accurate way to think of a bee is as a cell in a macro organism because they really don't behave as individuals with uh, separate identities. They behave very much as uh, one organism uh, and very much like the human body, um, specific bees like specific cells are happy to sacrifice themselves for the good of the whole. And I know we've got a few humans like that as well, I guess, but um, it's more of a bee related behavior. But I think um, we don't know how bees communicate. Uh, We're still very new into the science of how one bee sends a message to another bee. There's some innate intelligence that get, is getting passed from one bee to another. And we are... Like I look, the CIA. Sorry, the BIA. <laughs> that was not in the show. Um, yeah. It so, is now, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that is the, the future. Very exciting watching bees and figuring out how they send messages to each other. Mm. And, you know, we know a fair bit about neurology and how the human brain works. And uh, there's a lot of psychology which we've drawn on for the show. Although, Interestingly, some of the things you think we might draw on will not be in the show because they've been thoroughly debunked. We will mm. not be talking about the Milgram experiments, for example. Um, so, uh, which, if you're not familiar with them, listeners, um, famous experiments carried out in the 1960s to show that people would obey people in authority even when told to do something against their personal ethics. Uh, but in 2012, an Australian psychologist actually she did a review of it and found that Milgram may have fudged those results a little bit. And the Stanford Prison Experiment, we're not diving into that one either. No. Also been debunked. Also dodgy. I mean, this is the thing with the human brain. The second it realises it's being watched, it behaves in a different manner. So mm. it's very hard uh, for scientists themselves to not bias the data that they're collecting. And we'll be looking a little bit at that. But uh, we're, we're very aware that our audience is going to be aware that they're being watched from a yeah. science perspective and that that's going to definitely bugger up some of the data yeah and, and as the scientists in inverted commas in question we obviously have a bias towards finding the funniest results so <laughs> yes. i don't know if you can trust it it's not look the science is going to be loose let's just say you know <laughs> and will you publish your results is that the plan i'd love to yeah i think we, we probably could i mean probably you know, no journal to. will have us but we, we could publish them on a website <laughs> yeah. i don't know if you get ethical <laughs> approval for this to be honest well we do depends on the publication the toilet door at uh at the venue might be fine i'm not sure that needs ethics <laughs> approval no in fact um probably they, they would get taken down because it's too ethical <laughs> um but yeah i no, i think uh, we we do we sort of have an eth- i don't want to spoil the joke we do have an ethics committee of sorts okay, for good. the show we do they've approved everything that we're going to do so yeah, great. Okay, okay. Well, can you tell us a bit about the show? When, when, and where is it on? Uh, the show is on at Campari House, which is in Hardware Lane, so very nice and central in the city. And it's on at seven fifteen, seven fifteen p.m. Uh, from April first to April seventh, every night, hmm. seven Just, nights only. Well, yeah. Great. And how can people find out more and book tickets? You can Google You Chose Poorly MICF or you can jump on the Comedy Festival website. It should be there or Event Finder. It's another way to find it. Yeah, it's there. And if people are looking for you two online, where else can they find you? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, they can find me at benmckenzie.com.au and I have a nice big prominent link to the show on the front page of my website too. So that's another good place to find it. Brilliant. And from there, you should be able to find links to Atlanta on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, we're on all the social media things. Yeah, we're you both can on find Facebook. Us. If you can spell our name, you can find us. 
traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. Now it's time for Chris's snack spot. At least that's what I'm calling it as I'm eating grapes in the studio. Is that what you're calling it, Chris? Uh, look, you, we can if you want. This is actually another one of my homemade experiments. Chris does uh, science. And then, Chris does science live. So you don't have to. So you um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it involves, this week involves some grapes. So some of you know what I'm talking about. But um, yeah, what's, what, you know, grapes are very scientific. What can you tell me about grapes, Stu? Well, for table grapes. Yep. Um, uh, pretty much most people buy the Sultana table grapes, which are the seedless variety of grape, which have been treated with a specific plant hormone called gibberellic acid, which makes the grapes swell up and get larger without what? increasing the amount of sugar in them. So hang on. So you're saying that grapes aren't normally as big as we get them in the supermarket? No. Have... So if you, get, if you get a little packet of Sultanas, a little packet yeah, yeah. of dried Sultanas, soak them in water... The sultanas will only be sort of one, one and a half centimetres in size. Yeah. But if you compare that to a table grape, which you buy from the supermarket or from the greengrocer, they're much larger. They're about three, three and a half centimetres long. The reason that they're so big is because they've been sprayed with this plant hormone to make them swell up and get bigger. Well, there we go. That wasn't what I came in to talk about, but um, that is that's interesting, pretty interesting nonetheless. Nonetheless. Now, what I'm talking about actually is something you may have seen on the internet. Um, it's something that that uh, used to be a party trick of mine back in the 90s. Before there was even a YouTube, I used to do this trick where you would basically get a grape and you would cut it in half. Well, almost in half. Like you would you'd cut it down the middle and you leave a little bit of skin joining the two halves and you stick that in the microwave and then you get sparks flying. And it was quite and, a spectacular party trick. And not just social sparks between you and your audience, but... Literal sparks in yeah. the microwave. Yeah, not so much the social sparks, mostly just the literal <laughs> sparks, really, yeah. Um, and so this was something, I, I don't know where I got it from, because clearly I didn't get it from YouTube at the time. But yeah, it was the kind of thing that was just a bit of fun. And I assumed it was something like something happening where the, the bit of skin that was joined the two halves of grape um, caught fire somehow or something was going on like that. And it Did you really ever hot. try and explain it? No, I never tried to explain it. And apparently... Um, Unlike you, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so many other things to explain, Claire. Yeah, Don't have time true. for everything. It's true. Um, apparently, a lot of the YouTube videos that are people doing this on the, this particular experiment come with all kinds of crazy explanations, uh, mostly around, um, again, some, some sort of superheating or electric current going along this bit of skin that's joined the two halves of the grape. But it turns out this, this explanation is not quite correct. And some physicists at the University of... Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in the US have done a very detailed study where they have figured out what is actually going on with grapes in the microwave. With champagne grapes? Um, with any grapes. Okay. Does it work with any grapes? That's It, it works with all kinds of things, not just grapes. Ah. In fact, they kind of produce some, like an idealised grape-like object with made of hydrogel <laughs> spheres. Um, <laughs> of course they did because physics. Uh, yeah, well, they were... They were you know, trying to figure out what's going on. They were trying to show that it didn't have to be a grape, I guess is right. what I'm saying. Yeah. You know? So the grape is is arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So it turns out that um, the actual, the little skin joining the two halves has got nothing to do with it. Right. That it's actually the fact that you have two kind of spheroids or, you know. Hemispheroids? 
Well, no, actually, the the round bits, the the round roundish things, mm. um, next to each other is what is causing it. So what these what these physicists did is they um, they did a few experiments of different ways of of making grape spark, and then they um they trained thermal cameras and spectrometers on 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 them to see what was going on. And it turns out it is due to it is due obviously due to microwaves, and it's due to what happens um, to the microwaves inside. A spheroid, or when there is more than one spheroid. So if you just have one grape, what actually happens is you get a uh, you get a resonance of the waves inside the grape, and you get a hot spot right in the middle of of the grape. So they found this with their thermal imaging cameras. Yeah. Um, but if you get two grapes next to each other, um, so they're they're touching or they're very close to each other, then what actually happens is instead of getting like two hot spots, they they kind of become one big kind of joint thing and you get a little a very concentrated hotspot right basically where they touch. So oh. much more intense, much hotter. And it gets hot enough to um to ionize electrolytes in the grapes. Um, because when they did like special analysis they saw it had like signs of sodium and potassium and stuff like that. So it ionizes the electrolytes and um and that causes um a, creates a plasma which then you know heats up and sparks fly, literally. So the answer is it's because they have electrolytes. Well, no, it's because of the the, the, the thing that the um that the microbes are doing with the, the spheroidal objects. Yep. If you want to know, it's a uh, morphology dependent resonance. So it's a resonance of the waves depending on the, the, the shape. shape. Yeah, um, and it is basically the same as a mi resonance, which is M I E, which is what happens to waves inside a spheroidal shape. Right. So anyway, and, and the and the dissolved electrolytes in the grape tissue also have an effect as well. Well, that's what's actually becoming the plasma, yeah. but that's only because it's being heated up enough. Right. So yeah, you have to have something to be heated up to become a plasma. But yeah, it is the fact that it's got this incredible um, temperature mm. caused by the concentration of the um, the microwaves at this, this point. So I thought it'd be fun for us to try this experiment because I haven't ever actually tried it you know, with just two grapes, without doing the cutting up and having a bit of skin joining. So I thought we could. We have a we have a microwave here in in the in the building, and I thought we could go down to the kitchen and we could microwave some grapes and ruin the microwave oven. What do you reckon? Great, great idea, great okay. idea. So let us do that. All right, now let's not make too much noise because there there is like other shows being recorded here, and you know Why we don't you want. Why are looking at me when you do we, that? Don't I don't know what this will do to the microwave oven, so we don't want to do a lot of damage. Now apparently the grapes I need to be like three millimeters apart. So if they're touching, so they have to be in proximity, but not. They 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 can they don't even have to be totally touching. They can be okay. as far as three millimeters. Apart. All right. So Chris is putting the two grapes into the microwave, and I'm putting one grape into my mouth. All right. Now I'm just gonna start this, and we'll see what happens. Talk us through it. All right. So well, um, as happens in a microwave oven, whoa. What's happening? Well, we didn't get we didn't get we visible didn't get sparking because they blew apart. They boiled. They kind of boiled. Oh. So I think oh, they're quite hot. They're I think quite we should hot. try again. Okay. Do you think we should try again? Yeah, definitely. Yes, definitely. Try again. Okay. Two. So, do we got any other dish? Maybe one that's can can find them a bit better or something. Ooh, that's what I was looking for. I'll try once again. We can see it better now. Alright, so we got two back in the microwave. Alright. And you're putting it on high or defrost? Uh, <laughs> automatic. Automatic, great. 
Oh, they blew up again. Yeah. But oh, oh, oh so we sparking. Sparking. I think we stopped that there. Uh, yes, we had sparking. And we stopped before we damaged the microwave. <laughs> <laughs> A successful experiment. Fantastic. Oh, they're very hot. Alright, quick. Back to the studio before someone finds us. Phew, uh, well, we um, we made it back to the studio, okay? So there you go, guys. Uh, you can vouch for that, can't you? Mm. We saw actual sparks. We saw sparks. We sparks saw were flying. Yeah, there were sparks, there was smoke. Yeah, there was a little bit of sparking and smoking. Yeah, there was, there was sound um, also. Yeah, so I think this demonstrates quite simply that anyone can just do this. In fact, try this at home. <laughs> Kids ask. No, don't ask mum and dad's permission because they won't give you permission. Um, just do it. Stick a couple of grapes in the microwave and... <laughs> Is this irresponsible? Uh, yeah, maybe talk to mum and dad first before you do this. I don't know. Or, you know, if you're old enough to own your own microwave, make your own choices. Yeah. But it shows that it it's a pretty simple demonstration that you don't need to have the, the grapes cut in half with a little bit of skin joining them. You can just have two grapes and they will do this. It's actually the fact that they are kind of little spheroids close to each other, filled with water um, that will um, heat up when... Uh, uh, when there's microwaves, and that's essentially all you need. Now, we are a national show, and I just wanted to send out a special shout-out to Zanzi McGregor and all of the kids at Corbinia Primary School in Western Australia, who I have heard listen in to us every week. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, and if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost in Science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.